I'm on some new shit Been saying yes instead of no I thought I saw you at the bus stop I didn't though I hit the ground running each night I hit the Sunday matinee You know the greatest films of all time were never made I guess you never know, never know Wanted me, you really should have showed. And if you never bleed, you're never gonna grow. And it's all right now. But we were something, don't you think so? Roaring twenties, tossing pennies in the pool. And if my wishes came true, it would have been you. In my defense, I have none for never leaving well enough alone. I keep thinking about how we'll talk about this time in two years, and ten years, and two decades. Harper's Weekly wrote this four years ago. If it felt like time stopped when Beyonce surprise dropped her self-titled visual album in 2013, the semi-surprise release of Lemonade in 2016 felt like a hole being torn in the fabric of the universe. Good album, but universe-tearing? I don't know. That was four years ago. Hurricane Katrina is 15 years old. Remember Heck of a Job, Brownie? The Superdome? Camp Greyhound? The shooting of the looters in the water? Well, that last one never happened, but maybe remember it anyway. Katrina's 15. The movie Gladiator just turned 20. Do you remember posting about it on Facebook when it came out? You didn't. Facebook didn't launch until four years after. But maybe you remember doing it anyway. Truth can become smoke in the fire pit of our memories, shapeless and floating far from the source. Memories of 2020, filled with dread and boredom and isolation, too will fade and drift, turning into stories, myths, tall tales, folklore. Some will remember the lighter traffic. Some will forget how fearful they were. Some remember just how lonely they were, how horny they were. The truth of this past year will dissolve into pieces, and those pieces will get put back together into something even more true, something true that never happened. And the truth, the lies, the rumors, the myths, the pain, the panic, all of it will pour into a beautiful, mixture, a story, a folktale. So it seems now is a good time to mention that this year, Taylor Swift restored my faith in humanity. During the pandemic, I became disillusioned by the idea that anything mattered at all. I worried that life, as Macbeth says, is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. As societal structures and institutions began to fall and close, it was hard to continue to buy into the capital M meaning being sold to us. We are a family, your company said, as they let you go via Zoom. We care about your health, your government said, as it stood by, an inert bystander by the trolley switch, people laid down on both tracks. We care about our customers, the bar said, as they reopened their petri dish saloons. 
I saw a banner on a church driving south on I-35 from Dallas to Austin. It said, God's got this. And it felt like even the churches were giving up. Nothing seemed to matter anymore. Why try it all when the game is so rigged, when the game doesn't even exist? Why dress to kill if your only date is oblivion? I felt as if I was, as the song goes, in a car underwater with time to kill. And I realized that all this pity does nothing either. Nietzsche himself said that pity multiplies misery and conserves all that is miserable and is thus a prime instrument of the advancement of decadence. Pity persuades people to nothingness. And it was amidst this cloud of nihilism while sitting in my apartment piled high with boxes a week out from an impending move across the state that I found lowercase folklore, the new record from Taylor Swift. Because what folklore says, well, what it says to me is that yes, these times are terrible. And no, right now, nothing does matter. But in the future, we will be able to process it, to bring meaning to it. Survival, as Jawbreaker said, never goes out of style. And in the future, hopefully some near-distant future, some many, many short moons from now, purpose will creep back into our lives. And we will be there with our memories and our myths, with our stories and our folklore. As for all that pity, well, I think I've seen this film before, so I'm leaving out the side door. I'm David Callison, and this is The Sound and the Goddamn Story. Rebecca rode up on the afternoon train. It was sunny. Her salt box house on the coast took a mind off St. Louis. Bill was the heir to the Standard Oil name and money. And the town said, How did a middle class divorce say do it? The wedding was charming, if a little gauche. Only so far new money goes They picked out a home and called it Holiday House Their parties were tasteful if a little loud The doctor had told him to settle down It must have been her fault his heart gave out And they said there goes the last great American dynasty Showed up what could have been There goes the maddest woman this town So I don't think I need to give a full history of Taylor Swift to you. Wikipedia provides a whole novel. But there's one aspect I want to touch on. Swift is one of the entertainment industry's greatest business people. Even early on, she was meticulous about her career. And her ideas and execution of big splashy reveals is rarely rivaled. Her album 1989 was announced in front of the Empire State Building, a nod to the album's first track, and all physical copies came with 13, Taylor's lucky number, behind-the-scenes Polaroid pictures in reference to the album cover, an instant photo of Swift's upper torso. For reputation and a direct planned response to her 2016 mini-cancellation that involved Kanye's song Famous, she nuked her social media and then added moody, glitchy, black snake imagery that would later feature in her first single from that record, as well as her tour for that album cycle. 
If you care about Swift's story at all, Lena Wilson's Miss Americana documentary on Netflix does a good job of laying this time period to bear. And of course, alongside the doc, which is in part about Swift breaking her perceived silence on politics, a new political fight song debuted. She is a marketing genius. That Reputation Tour saw almost 3 million attendees and grossed $345 million, the highest in US history. Her next album was endlessly teased with Instagram clues and obscure Easter eggs buried in various videos. Fate intervened after its launch, however, and Taylor's mom was diagnosed with brain cancer, sidelining any big tour plans. This summer was supposed to be a group of shows billed as mini festivals, but COVID ruined those plans as well. Oh, and she was also in Cats, but let's just not talk about that. Cool? Cool. So this is where we find Taylor. Having turned 30 in December of 2019, all her carefully crafted plans in chaos. So, loose of all expectations, and freed from having to properly tour or do press like a normal album cycle, Swift wrote an astonishingly elegant folk ballad record, something impossible to conceive of in her previous world of big releases and stadium tours. Taylor has crafted the first stay-at-home pandemic record that feels like it was in development for years, something new that feels both prescient and well-worn. Supplemented by three of the most genius indie rock producers around, Aaron Dessner of The National, Justin Vernon of Bon Iver, and longtime collaborator Jack Antonoff of Bleachers and Fun, Taylor chose to expand her creative energy beyond her own life and instead tells other people's stories. And it turns out she's really good at it. She tells tales, some true, some fables, some a bit of both, with mature emotional brushstrokes, trading in her clever barbs for more nuanced, more satisfying mystery and ambiguity. It works so well. So let's get into those stories. Let's let's listen to some folklore. Please picture me in the trees. I hid my peak at seven In 2013, Swift bought a house in Watch Hill, Rhode Island. That house used to be owned by Rebecca Harkness, the eccentric, erratic Midwesterner, who became incredibly rich when her second husband, an heir of the Standard Oil fortune, died at age 60. The song, The Last Great American Dynasty, is a bit of a eulogy for Rebecca, as well as, uh, somehow, impossibly, a chance for Taylor to humbly draw attention to the lack of respect that very, very rich women tend to get. When Swift bought the mansion for $17 million, she faced a pack of not-in-my-backyarders, assailing her with regulatory picadillos over property lines, beach access, and retaining walls. There's folklore at play here, too. 
One article I read said the noisy neighbors posted signs with a swift lyric meant as a kiss-off. I knew you were trouble when you walked in. Others say that Swift posted them herself as cheeky no trespassing signs. On the track, Taylor switches to first person to declare with sublime cheek, there goes the loudest woman this town has ever seen. I had a marvelous time ruining everything. Regardless, all that real estate talk is just window dressing. The crux of the song comes at the first chorus. William Bill Hale Harkness, her husband, died of a heart attack in 1954, and Rebecca got a lot of the blame. The chorus says, there goes the last great American dynasty. When Bill Harkness dies, the dynasty is over, despite there being a queen on the throne who inherited all his money. Rebecca is so undervalued, she isn't even considered as worthy of inheriting the Standard Oil name. Not even thought of as an option. So it's no wonder that she had zero fucks to give. Most of the history of Rebecca is pulled from Craig Unger's 1988 out-of-print tabloidy biography, Blue Blood. Its veracity was questioned at the time, but that works even better for this album of stories that weave in between truth and fantasy. Harkness was vicious, mean, and weird. She rang the doorbell of reclusive author J.D. Salinger, dressed as a maid, trying to pitch him on setting his stories to music. Salinger declined, thus depriving us of Catcher in the Rye, the musical. She filled her swimming pool with champagne and her fish tank with scotch. She threw dinner plates at a band. Her ashes were held in a $250,000 urn designed by Salvador Dali. The New York Times didn't find as much inspiration in Harkness's story as Swift did, saying in a review of the book, quote, Knowing all this, what is it exactly that we have learned? That money can't buy happiness? That even the rich must die? These are facts of which we have already been apprised. Swift has said that instead of inserting her usual lyrical Easter eggs, she wrote this batch of songs with a handful of characters in mind, and that those characters might appear in multiple songs at different times in their life. It's not hard to see, then, Harkness as the narrator, or partial narrator, in Mad Woman. Every time you call me crazy, I get more crazy. What about that? Using threads she started to spin in Last Great Dynasty, Swift expands her character study to include the vicious double standard that decrees that women must be calm, polite, and grounded, else tarred with the labels of insanity like crazy or psycho or mad. I'll let Swift explain from her recent documentary, Folklore, The Long Pond Studio Sessions. The most rage-provoking element of being a female is, is the gaslighting that happens when you know, for centuries, we've been just expected to absorb male behavior silently, right? Silent absorption of whatever any guy decides yeah. to do. And oftentimes when we, in our enlightened state and our emboldened state now, respond to bad male behavior or somebody just doing something that was absolutely out of line and we respond that response is treated like the offense itself. Yeah. This song, Mad Woman, also deals with a real-life situation for Swift, the purchase of her masters by Justin Bieber, Discoverer, and manager Scooter Braun. Here's what went down. Very quick lesson on labels, advances, and masters. When most artists sign to a major label, they give the label the rights to their masters in exchange for an advance, money used to record the album which then must be paid back to the label via record sales. 
which means, yes, bands can owe their label money if they don't sell enough copies of their record. And even if they do, bad record contracts can cost bands everything. Famously, TLC filed for bankruptcy at the same time their album Crazy Sexy Cool was selling millions. Masters are physically the actual tape the final version of the record is pressed from, from which all the other copies are reproduced. Now, of course, this is mostly all done digitally, but the concept remains. Whoever owns the masters owns the music. The owner of the masters can reproduce that music any way they see fit without the artist's permission. Now, the artist still gets paid in royalties, but they have no sign-off on how it gets used. Michael Jackson in the 1980s bought much of the Beatles masters. So when Nike came calling and wanted to use the Beatles song Revolution in an advertisement, it was Jackson who approved it, and it was Jackson who was paid the licensee fee by Nike. The Beatles later sued, saying that they didn't make music to endorse or peddle sneakers or pantyhose. While I'm unsure of the validity of the pantyhose legal argument, they later settled with Jackson out of court. It's a terrible system that is just now starting to crumble, but one that still stands for the majority of artists and labels. And it was no different for Swift when she signed with startup Big Machine Records in 2005, founded by Scott Borchetta when Swift was just 15. She was their first signee and Borchetta started the label specifically to put out her music. Fast forward a billion records later and it's November 19th, 2018, the day Taylor Swift's contract with Big Machine expired. And here's where accounts differ. Swift has said that she had been trying to buy back her masters from Big Machine for years and was stymied. Big Machine denies this and says that they had drawn up a 10-year deal where she would retain all of her masters. The label claimed that Swift had come back with a counteroffer of seven years, but the deal had never been signed. Swift denies that precise language, saying that Big Machine wanted her to earn back her masters one at a time, one for each new record she made. Look, I, I tend to believe artists in these cases and... I tend to believe women in these cases of extremely imbalanced power. And anyway, shouldn't an artist own their own fucking music? Like, even Adam Smith ain't that cold. That's an economics joke for y'all. Whatever went down, Swift didn't re-up with Big Machine and instead signed to Republic Records, an imprint of Universal. Part of the deal stipulated that she would own all her masters moving forward. Interestingly, all the reporting at the time falsely speculated that, as part of her original contract, she had also kept the rights to her own Big Machine records because, you know, artists should own their own fucking music. So after Swift left, Big Machine's revenue plummeted since she was reportedly bringing in about 80% of the label's revenue. The Golden Goose had left the... Uh, where do geese live? Barnes? I don't know. So in June of 2019, Big Machine was put up for sale by founder Scott Borchetta, who had signed Swift all those years ago. Scooter Braun, one of Taylor's mortal enemies, bought the label, and thus Taylor's music, for $300 million. Swift and Braun's beef goes way back. Swift recently said, Anytime Scott Borchetta has heard the word Scooter Braun escape my lips, it was when I was either crying or trying not to. At the time of the sale, Swift said, when I left my masters in Scott Borchetta's hands, I made peace with the fact that eventually he would sell them. Never in my worst nightmares did I imagine the buyer would be Scooter, she wrote. He knew what he was doing. They both did. Controlling a woman who didn't want to be associated with them. In late November, it was announced Braun had sold her masters, not the rest of the label, just Taylor's masters, 
for $300 million to Shamrock Holdings, a private equity firm founded by Roy Disney. Swift again says she was not given an opportunity to buy them back herself from Braun. She comments on the whole thing in relation to this song and the documentary. You know, there was, there's was there been situations with recently with somebody who's, who do, who's very guilty of this in, in my life, and it's a person who makes me feel or tries to make me feel like I'm the offender by having any kind of defense to yeah. his offenses. It's like, oh, I have absolutely no right to respond or I'm crazy. I have no right to respond or I'm angry. I have no right to respond or I'm out of line. Yeah. So you were providing the musical bed for me to make that point that I've been trying so hard to figure out how do I say that how do I say why this feels so bad? All right. With that context behind us, back to Mad Woman. It's worth noting that the song contains the first time she has used the word fuck in her music, and she uses it specifically directed at someone imagining her. Do you see my face in the neighbor's lawn? Does she smile or does she mouth fuck you forever? In the bridge she sings, I'm taking my time, taking my time, because you took everything from me, watching you climb, watching you climb over people like me. This, it seems, is a pretty obvious dig at Braun, and she continues, The master of spin has a couple side flings. Good wives always know. She should be mad. She should be scathing like me. This is probably a dig at uh, Braun and Braun's wife, who came out defending her husband and attacking Swift in the media. Knowing Swift, the use of master and spin, as in her masters and spending her records, was probably not coincidental. One theme of the song seems to say that women should be the first one to have each other's backs. But, as she says, women like hunting witches too. And at the end, she rightly blames misogyny, both external and internalized, for the way powerful women are portrayed as over-emotional, crazy, or, you know, but her emails... You can see the evolution of Swift's writing in these two songs. She tells the story of a historical character, herself, and the wider world, all at the same time. Salt air and the rust on your door. I never needed anything more or whispers of are you sure? Never have I ever before But I can see us lost in the memory August slipped away into a moment in time Cause it was never mine And I can see us twisted in bed sheets August slipped away like a bottle of wine Cause you were never mine You're back beneath the sun Wishing I could write my name on it But you call when you're back at school I remember thinking I had you But I can see it's lost in the memory August slipped away into a moment in time Cause it was never mine The lyrical core of folklore is what Taylor calls the teenage love triangle that encompasses at least the songs Cardigan, Betty, and August. The same story told from different perspectives. She stole the characters' names, Betty, Inez, and James, from her friends Blake Lively and Ryle Reynolds' own children. There was a brief flurry over the fact that she might have penned a queer love story between, those, between three teenage girls, 
since Lively's James is female, but canonically Swift said it was a teenage boy. But, I mean, obviously, you should make your own meaning. Here's the story in brief. James has a crush on Betty who goes to his high school. They were official, or as official as it gets at that age. But then James goes away for the summer to the coast and meets Inez. They spend a drunken, sexy, sexual summer together, and Betty is left to pick up the pieces, which still haunt her years later. August tells the story of that summer of illicit love between James and Inez from Inez's perspective. And I can see us twisted in bedsheets, August slipped away like a bottle of wine, because you were never mine. Inez continues to weave their beautiful time together with the fact that there was never any future in it. So much for summer love and saying us, because you weren't mine to lose. In her eyes, he always belonged to Betty. And at the end of the song, we get their origin story referenced in the song Betty, when Inez shows up in her car and urges James to get in and ride off into the sunset with her. They started hanging out and making out, quote, meet me behind the mall. And those days turned into nights and those nights turned into a whole summer. What's notable here is that Inez knows from the very beginning that James is unattainable, and yet she continues to get twisted up with him all summer. This is symbolized by the first line, the rust on his door, a sign of it being both beach adjacent and broken. The salty sea breeze smells sweet, but stings your eyes. In Betty, we get James's perspective, and he admits everything straight up, saying, You heard the rumor from Inez. You can't believe a word she says. Most times, but this time it was true. The worst thing that I ever did was what I did to you. Normally, Inez throws that goss around, but this time, it's true. The fact that Betty gave him the benefit of the doubt, chalked it up to rumors, is even more heartbreaking, but surely familiar to a lot of us. James's main defense is his young age. I'm only 17, I don't know anything. Which is fair to some extent. I mean, teenage boys are especially dumb. But what's brilliant about this triptych is that in August we know how intentional James was. We know that he made choices that led to being with Inez and betraying Betty. He knew plenty. And Betty says as much in Cardigan. And when you are young, they assume you know nothing. His excuse of ignorance falls flat. But in this song, we also learn of where James and Betty might have started fraying. Her favorite song was playing at the school dance. She turns to find him, to dance together. He's nowhere to be found. See, he had seen her dancing with someone else, and his insecurity got the best of him, so he bolted. And here I thought the gym was neutral territory. But then we hear about Inez driving up, referenced at the end of August, that reveals how James and Inez first got together. I was walking home on broken cobblestones, just thinking of when she pulled up like a figment of my worst intentions. She said, James, get in, let's drive. After the summer is over, James shows up at Betty's place at a party she's throwing, wearing her old cardigan, trying to win her back. Betty has too much respect for herself to take him back. And now's a good time to check in with how Betty feels about all this. Her viewpoint is told in Cardigan, a song that feels that it was set years later when Betty is older and looking back on her high school days. Vintage tea, brand new phone, high heels on cobblestones. When you are young, they assume you know nothing. But I knew you, dancing in your Levi's, drunk under a streetlight. I knew you. Hand under my sweatshirt. Baby, kiss it better. A nostalgic look back on teenage love, teenage fun. But she quickly brings up the indiscretion. A friend to all is a friend to none. 
chase two girls, lose the one. And in fact, it seems like he loses both. But despite everything, there's regret that lingers for her even long after this high school relationship. I knew you'd haunt all of my what ifs. The smell of smoke would hang around this long. Cause I knew everything when I was young. I knew I'd curse you for the longest time. She remarks on how special he was. Once in 20 lifetimes, turning her scars into stars. She knew him, she repeats, and tried to change the ending, referencing Peter Pan wanting Wendy to stay in Neverland with him. And we then understand why him wearing that cardigan on her porch was so meaningful, but not meaningful enough to accept him back. And when I felt like I was an old cardigan under someone's bed, you put me on and said I was your favorite. Those three songs are the base trilogy of the story, but I think there might be another chapter here too. This is me trying a desperate dreamy ballad that would be a top three track on any of her other records tells the story of someone looking back at their youthful actions and finally taking responsibility. It feels to me like James in a bar 20 years later, starting his journey of sobriety and reflection. I didn't know if you'd care if I came back. I have a lot of regrets about that. Looking back on his past, he reflects on his mistakes. They told me all my cages were mental, so I got wasted like all my potential. Swift notes that the narrator fell behind all his classmates, which feels like one of her signposts connecting the song to the former teenage tragedy. But even though he's at the bar, pouring out his heart to a stranger, the bartender, he doesn't drink. He refuses to continue the cycle that got him here in the first place. And pleading, he tells his memory of Betty that this is him trying, that at least he's trying. It's a simple song, but one that is deeply affecting. A life raft in the middle of the bleak ocean. I've been having a hard time adjusting. I had the shiniest wheels, now they're rusting. I didn't know if you'd care if I came back. I have a lot of regrets about that. Pulled the car off the road to the lookout. Could have followed my As we're seeing, a lot of these songs relate to each other thematically. And My Tears Ricochet is again about a mad woman, albeit a dead mad woman. The internet seems convinced that this song is also about Scooter Braun, Big Machine. And yes, I think it's about greed and betrayal, but I think Taylor's writing broader than that. She seems excited to be telling broader fictional stories about broader fictional people 
and My Tears Ricochet as a metaphor for betrayal in the story of the ghost of an abused partner visiting her own funeral. We gather here, we line up, weeping in a sunlit room. And if I'm on fire, you'll be made of ashes too. The ghost is watching her own funeral and references her cremation and her residual anger towards her partner who is left alive. The end of the verse confirms the premise, because I loved you, I swear I loved you, till my dying day. This song is essentially about extrapolating that feeling of when someone treats you so badly, you feel like they don't want you to exist at all. And more heartbreaking is that this person used to be your most trusted person, your best friend, your spouse. If I'm dead to you, why are you at the wake? Is a bombshell of a lyric in the engraving on my future tombstone. Essentially, she's saying, if you didn't want me when I was alive, why are you celebrating my life now that I'm dead? Based on how you treated me in the end, my death should mean nothing to you. After shedding her mortal coil, she is free to go anywhere, but she still can't go home, lest she have to see her abuser, even to haunt him. And then, though the song is essentially an extended metaphor, we learn that the betrayer was the cause of her death. You had to kill me, but it killed you just the same. Cursing my name, wishing I stayed. Look at how my tears ricochet. Look at what her death has meant to everyone else. This ghost is missed by so many others. Look at how her tears ricochet. Look at everyone affected. And at the same time, the ghost reminds us that she didn't have it in her to go with Grace. She might have succumbed, but she didn't go down without a fight. It's the most complicated take on relationships Swift has penned yet, an exploration of embitterment, attraction, and pain. It earns its spot as a track five, where Swift always slots her most bruising emotional songs. Because when I'd fight you, you used to tell me I was brave. And if I'm dead to you, why are you at the wake? Cursing my name, wishing I stayed. Look at how my tears ricochet. And I can go anywhere I want, anywhere I want, just not home. And you can name for my heart, go for blood. But you would still miss me in your bones. And I still talk to you. And when you can't sleep at night, you hear my soul There are a batch of songs in folklore that are couched closer to reality than the Mad Woman and Teenage Triangle songs. In Invisible Strings, Peace, and The Lakes, she memorialized her relationship with Joe Alwyn, who is actually a co-writer in some of these songs, credited as William Bowery. Invisible Strings charts their origins. Bad was the blood of the song in the cab on your first trip to LA, a reference to her own song, Bad Blood, that hit in 2014. A string that pulled me out of all the wrong arms right into that dive bar. This is the same Lower East Side joint she referenced on Delicate, the flirtatious track from Reputation. The gist here is that something, something pulled these two together from the green of Centennial Park in Nashville, so his hometown, to the Lake District in Britain, one of Alan's favorite spots. On the song The Lakes, she elaborates, take me to the lakes where all the poets went to die. I don't belong in my beloved, neither do you. What's interesting about this line is the idea that they don't belong there. Is it because they aren't poets? Or that they went there entwined in joy, filled with life instead of death? 
Those Windmere peaks look like a perfect place to cry. I'm setting off, but not without my muse. In Greek mythology, the nine muses were born from the all-powerful Zeus's union with memory itself, creating a powerful memory of music and art, which is Swift's overall theme for the record and its title, Folklore. She speaks of the layers of feeling she's dealing with, combining the ethereal with the modern mundane, her joy with sadness. A red rose grew up out of ice, frozen ground, with no one around to tweet it, while I bathe in cliffside pools with my calamitous love. An insurmountable grief. It brings us to the paradoxes she brings up on peace, asking pointedly and repeatedly, would it be enough if I could never give you peace? Promising Alwyn that she can give him anything, her sunshine, her time in the trenches, but with her, because of who she is in the world, peace is impossible. The rain is always going to come if you're standing with me, she sings. Peace is a question and a dare, a warning and a threat. But I'm a fire and I'll keep your brittle heart warm if your cascade ocean wave blues come. All these people think love's for show, but I would die for you in secret. But she offers up the most treasure and the most powerful thing that she has, her fame, her name. If he needs her away from the limelight, she'll visit obscurity and stay there if she has to. And so with that, she asks, be enough, even though I can never give you peace. His answer is the shape of their love for years to come. Lest you think Swift has gotten all soft, she ends invisible strings with a delicious kiss off. Cold was the steel of my axe to grind for the boys who broke my heart. Now I send their babies presents. Most likely a reference to former beau Joe Jonas, who just had a child with his wife, Sophie Turner, Sansa on Game of Thrones. Swift has come into her own on this record, recognizing her immense level of fame and influence while at the same time trying to stay as level as you can when you're Taylor Swift. She talks about this idea in each of her love songs to Alan. Bold was the waitress on our three-year trip, getting lunch down by the lakes. She said, I look like an American singer. But with great fame, of course, comes great responsibility. And in many ways, Mirrorball acts as the emotional center of the record. Swift bearing herself in a way we don't usually see. But before we dig into that, I want to talk about the producer of this song and others on the record, Jack Antonoff. He's the man behind some of your favorite pop songs of the last decade, and his journey there is equally as interesting. Antonoff's first outing was as lead singer and guitarist of rootsy indie-ish band Steel Train. Think Avet Brothers, but a little poppier. They never really fit in anywhere in the indie or emo scene, but toured with the likes of The Hush Sound, Tegan and Sarah, Binfold, and others. Their somewhat generic sound was buoyed by Antonoff's velvet voice and introspective lyrics. After that, Nate Roos, formerly of The Format, a cult indie pop band out of Arizona, recruited him to play guitar in a band he called Fun, period, all lowercase. You might be aware of their second album, Some Nights, and its single, We Are Young, co-written by Antonoff. Despite the absolute massive success of that album, Fun would soon call it quits freeing Antonoff to create Bleachers, a remarkably melodic throwback to 80s teen flicks, synths included. He penned I Wanna Get Better, a catchy bop that detailed every bad thing that has ever happened to him, along with a rousing chorus, a style that would become his signature. The video starred him and Lena Dunham, his girlfriend at the time, as his therapist. Life, meet art. Art, life. After Bleachers, Jack dove full force into producing, his resume includes Lord's Melodrama, Lana Del Rey's Rockwell, 
Swift's 1989 and Lover, among others. He told the New York Times, Taylor's the first person who let me produce a song. Before Taylor, everyone said, you're not a producer. It took Taylor Swift to say, I like the way this sounds. Antonoff has said that his songs on Folklore, My Tears, Ricochet, August, Betty, and Mirrorball are some of the best work he's ever done. Oh, and one last Antonoff note that I just like. Uh, the last song of Fun's album, Stars, dissolved into an auto-tuned swamp, and some critics didn't like it. It went on a while. He called out those critics and said, and I'm paraphrasing, if you don't understand what Nate, the lead singer, is doing on that song, you have no business listening to the album at all. I like that. We also bear a weird resemblance to each other, so I like that too. Back to the song, Mirrorball. Swift acknowledges her role in people's life. I want you to know I'm a mirrorball. I'll show you every version of yourself tonight. I'll get you out on the floor. Swift understands that she stands in for people's hopes, dreams, and ideals. An army of fans adore her body of work and the Taylor Swift they think they know. An appropriately curated version. You'll find me on my tallest tiptoes, spinning in my highest heels. Love shining just for you. She speaks to her fans here, an elegant way of saying I'm always trying. I'm always stretching for you, for the fans of my music. The spinning in high heels line is almost certainly a nod to Dashboard Confessional song Stolen, where Chris Carava sings I Watch You Spin Around in Your Highest Heel. It's worth noting that that song is about Chris seeing unattainably beautiful girls spin around for his father's clients at a conference as a child. Perhaps Swift related to that in a way. I can change everything about me to fit in. Taylor Swift, the commodity, the brand, can twist and fit every situation. She addresses this more on her documentary, but Swift is incredibly savvy and sees the difference between her personality and her brand. Folklore, it seems, despite mostly being about other characters, seems to bridge that gap with its own self-awareness. You are not like the regulars, the masquerade revelers, drunk as they watch my shattered edges glisten. The faceless masses she performs to who cheer louder for each song of heartbreak and pain. She conjures up a strong circus metaphor in the bridge, a nod to the media circus that is her life, and notes that I'm still on that tightrope, I'm still trying everything to get you laughing at me, and I'm still a believer, but I don't know why. After the copious amount of bullshit Swift's been through, and like her or not, deserve it or not, you have to agree it's a gargantuan amount of bullshit from Connie to Kim to Katie to Scooter fucking Braun. Swift is saying that she's still a believer in all this, still a believer in this industry, still a believer in her fans. It's a startling confession to even acknowledge she considered disbelief, but it makes Swift all the more endearing here. And as if that wasn't enough, she reminds us of the central charm of the entire record. I'm a mirror ball, and I'll show you every version of yourself tonight. Spinning in my highest heels, love, shining just for you. And they called off the circus, burned the disco down. When they sent home the horses and the rodeo clowns. I'm still on that tightrope, I'm still trying everything to get you laughing at me. I'm still a
We end the episode with the best song on the record, a stunning duet between Swift and Bonavere's Justin Vernon called Exile. It immediately reminded me of the Bonavere song I can't help but crying to and hope to walk down the aisle to, Blood Bank. On Exile, Vernon plays an obtuse lover, listening but not really hearing, witnessing but not really seeing. Swift calls him out in the most damning ways. Second, third, and hundredth chances, balancing on breaking branches. Those eyes add insult to injury. Fuck. A nuclear bomb. Swift described it as a song of miscommunications, and it is certainly that. Vernon's version is first. I can see you standing, honey, with his arms around your body. Well, right away not a good start, as he either sees or imagines her taking another lover. Laughing, but the joke's not funny at all. Reminds me of the good life lyric we started laughing till it didn't hurt. And it took you five whole minutes to pack us up and leave me with it, holding all this love out here in the hall. According to him, she quickly dispatches him, proving to him that he was never a big part of her life at all. Swift's character responds, I can see you staring, honey, like he's just your understudy, like you get your knuckles bloody for me. She knows he's only in it for the fight, for the pride, not not her at all. And now they have it out. You didn't even hear me out. You never gave me a warning sign, he says. I gave so many signs, she contends. So many signs, they both sing, agreeing on the words, but not the meaning. As Kevin Devine said, I was consumed with proving you were a liar, but what good would that do? We both know the truth. We were there and we lived it. And then finally, the chorus comes into focus as they sing together. I think I've seen this film before, and I didn't like the ending, he says. This isn't new, but it's, it's just as sad. You're not my homeland anymore. So what am I defending now? You are my town. Now I'm in exile seeing you out. I'm reminded here of the minutes just after breaking up with a partner. Sitting in bed, the sheets suddenly colder, the room quieter, breaths both ragged and relieved. Your home base shifts. Forever, minus one. I can see you standing, honey, with his arms around your body, laughing but the joke's not funny at all. And it took you five whole minutes to pack us up and leave me with it, holding all this love out here in the hall. I think I've seen this film before And I didn't like the ending You're not my homeland anymore So what am I defending now? You were my town Now I'm in exile seeing you out I think I've seen this film before Folklore is a lifeline, a tether to simpler times, a tree, a house, a lake, a Waldenness renaissance that Swift has invited us into, despite our inevitable disruptions. A meditation session for a noisy world. She claws for normalcy here and finds a version of it, her version of it. And the first time she shows us not Taylor Swift trademark, but just Taylor. 
and love and anger and fear. Not since Springsteen's Nebraska has a pop star at the height of her power laid herself bare in just this way. And this normalcy was a lifeline to me, a place to go to sit quietly in a different world, away from elections and death tolls and madness. And even though it's just a record, just stories, just folklore, it's the most honest thing I've found in a year full of pain and lies and no other sadness in the world would do. So what are your stories? What is your folklore? What side of yourself are you finally ready to spill? Because for me, this is me trying. friend